had a dream about this place. think of the first four episodes of this series as basically one long prologue. Um, so we discuss like the royal question, the initial stages of the the setting up of the Stay Behind Networks. We talked about colonialism, we talked about its effect on the Belgian national psyche. And now tonight, what we want to talk about, the last piece that we need to move into place is the role of the fascist underground in Belgian politics and Belgian society. Um, and yeah, Nick is joining us tonight from Belgium. So I now have an, an authentic Belgian backing me up every step of the way here. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I've been uh, reading about all this since Matt did his first series on uh, Belgium. Uh, so yeah, it's like going full, full circle for me, you know, getting to work on this. Or full circle, you might say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the circle. I will probably uh, cut that out. That was terrible. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm really glad to be here, and uh, I think we have uh, a lot to talk about. Yeah, definitely. So, the goals for tonight's episode um, are to give you, the listener, a a broad overview of the the course of right wing, far right wing uh, politics in Belgium after World War II or, or so, and we're also going to get granular as well with how these forces manifested at certain points in Belgian history. It's going to be an episode that's heavy on names and networks as well, so you are probably going to need a pen and a notepad if you want to follow along and do your own reading off the back of hearing this. Things are about to get fucking crazy, basically. So Belgium had no real far-right political party as such before World War I. Um, and this is because of like, the prominence of the Catholic Church and the way that that was integrated into the Belgian state. So you have the Catholic Party instead, which is the biggest right-wing political force in Belgium. And by default, it therefore contained within it like the closest approximation of a far-right tendency at the national level. But even then, this tendency was quite diluted because of the broad um, range of political views inside the Catholic party. Far-right politics and fascism in Belgium, they are not a monolith by any means. And that's in large part because of those regional and linguistic divides. Now, fascist theorists in Belgium did develop um, ideas about how they could overcome these regional and linguistic divides, which we will get to in a little while. And additionally, there's always been a really gnarly 
violent rivalry between the French and Flemish-speaking far-right groups. Uh, I think we touched on some of this in episode one, uh, when we talked about how some of the far-right were resisting the Nazis, but only because they wanted to establish their own, you know, uh, sort of radical right-wing Nazi-esque state in Belgium. Uh, and they would often fight with each other as much as the Nazis or collaborate with them. It's very complicated. So tonight we're mostly going to focus on the French-speaking far-right in Belgium because they have more bearing on the broader uh, Belgian X-Files story. But we will occasionally be mentioning the Flemish uh, groups too. So you had the more hardline authoritarian wing of the Catholic Party in the build-up to World War II. They created uh, what's called the Christus Rex Publishing House, and this was a vehicle to promote their uh, political ambitions. And this is where Leon de Grel comes into it. We discussed him previously. He became the director of the publishing house in around 1930. And he was appointed by Catholic Action for Belgian Youth. They were impressed with his journalism and his rhetorical skills. Um, and while Catholic Action was supposed to be apolitical, it was understood that de Grel was largely there to boost the Catholic party, basically. And de Krell became increasingly radicalized as a split developed inside the Catholic political movement between the establishment oligarch and a younger generation of Belgian Catholics. So guys like de Grel, who were pushing a much more radical nationalist initially monarchist agenda. Um, that it was kind of a, I don't want to say Trumpian because it's kind of a bit overdone, but it was kind of populist in the way that they would rant about like corrupt politicians and, you know, degenerate elites and whatnot. The other thing about de Grel as well, building this following is he wanted to appeal to as many um, parts of Belgian society as possible. And it came to be called ecumenical fascism uh, because what he promoted, because he wanted such a, a, a broad church, so to speak. Um and then, yeah, we get to World War II. We discussed what became of de Grel in episode one, so we don't need to uh, get into all that again. But after the war, the Belgian far right had to submerge for a time, and it had to find a way to quietly infiltrate itself into national politics. And the royal question initially gave them cover to attach themselves to you know, various monarchist political groups. So we get to 1960 and we get to the Congo crisis. And as Belgium's overseas imperial holdings um, start to collapse, this neo-aristocracy that we described in the last episode and the episode before, that embraced this project of neo-colonialism and it returned home. Now, these former colonists were overwhelmingly uh, French-speaking and they formed the social base of an emerging network of far-right think tanks and pressure groups Sometimes they were called the New European Rights. Later, they would be called the Euro-Fascist Movement. And some of them founded esoteric orders that fell midway between cults and social clubs for the upper classes. And occasionally they financed fascist paramilitary outfits directly, just for kicks, you know. So the stay-behind system underpinned much of this you know it was very useful for like conveying funding and influence between all these different groups and and far-right forces uh, because gladio was like this complex web that stretched across the continent and beyond and it connected intelligence agencies and big business these fascist underground movements and the european nobility and organized crime it brought them all together and bound them so due to Belgium's small size and 
the kind of the vexed internal divisions and contradictions, the Belgian far right has tended to embrace pan-European fascism, uh, especially strongly. And this means that they've repeatedly returned to this idea of a neo-Nazi European superstate. Um, and they, they go back to this all the time. And they were influenced in this by these radical uh, reactionary philosophers like uh, Julius Evola and um, Alain de Benoit. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, nailed it. Um, so yeah, he he especially uh, is a particularly prominent uh, Eurofascist philosopher. Belgium was a very crucial nexus point for Eurofascist groups of varying size and influence from across the continent owing to its location and its history. Uh, so it emerged from World War II as a very important strategic piece on the Cold War chessboard, you know. And they also had fascist groups from outside of the country setting up branches inside Belgium as well. So you had like the German Viking youth group, they opened branches in Belgium. Uh, you had Francois Dior of the, that Dior family. Uh, she established a Belgian chapter of the World Union of National Socialists. It was called the West European Federation. That was run by this ex-Waffen SS officer called uh, Claude Jeune. We were talking about this uh, when, when putting this episode together, but Francois Dior had um, an affair with her daughter and her daughter ended up killing herself eventually. And that seems to be one of the constants of this story is all of these like little fascist grouplets sort of coming together and splitting up. And the one thing that unites them is, you know, child abuse and uh, idolizing the Nazis. It's, it's fucking sick. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. This is not the first or this is the first, but not the last time we'll hear about stuff like this. Yeah. While Belgium is our focus, when we feel the need to kind of pursue little tangents, we're going to do so because Belgium was such um a crucial part, you know, of this post-war neo-fascist underworld in Europe. Now, crucially, decolonization triggered the re-entry of Nazi collaborationists into Belgian political life, and these escalating Cold War tensions saw the Belgian uh, communists lose a substantial amount of support. And if we're talking about collaborationists and how they re-entered Belgian political life, then we could do worse than look at Jean Terrier, um, who formed the Committee for Action and the Defense of African Belgians in 1960 as a direct response to um, the Congo crisis. Now, we met this guy last episode. Originally, he was a leftist who embraced Nazism for what he saw as its revolutionary potential. He joined the Waffen-SS. He served time for that. And once he got out, he became a, a big player in far-right politics in Belgium. And this Committee for Action called for mass protests and civil disobedience that was meant to disrupt the decolonization process, but it was a failure. Like Nobody gave a shit. In terms of popular support, it does strike me that most of these groups now, to like the average Belgian citizen's credit, um, most of these groups enjoy very little support um, you know, at the electoral level. But it's more the uh, the influence they wield, I suppose, you know, with like power brokers, business and politics and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. It's like um, these were uh, at a very local level, usually. Uh, so just an, uh, either in Brussels or in, a, in another small city. And they didn't have um, such an impact 
uh, as you could think. Um, and they usually either split or disappeared. So yeah, it's not like yeah. they, they were influential on uh, on the Belgian people, but rather, like you said, uh, their ideas were influential to you know maybe some uh, higher ups. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the Francois Dior thing it sounds very grand, like you know the World Union of National Socialists. But I think by the time that group fell apart in like the early seventies. It only had something like 38 or 39 members in Belgium. And, and usually they were, um, you know, only composed of a member of the elite Belgian society. So, you know, uh, the bourgeoisie, uh, and it's not like uh, you could join them, you know, if you, if you wanted, or you had to be like uh, invited to, to them. Yeah, for sure. Um, in fact, we'll get onto that in a second about why that was. This attempt by the Committee for Action uh, to disrupt the decolonization process didn't work. Nobody gave a shit. So they transformed into the Civic Action Movement, or the MAC. And the MAC lent support to the Secret Army Organization of France, which had adopted terrorism to further its you know, pro-colonial agenda in Africa. And Tilliat began to develop this theory of pan-European nationalism. Um, or really, he was latching on to ideas that were already popular, you know, in certain circles in Europe. And in his view, Europe should take the form of a United States that stretched from Norway to South Africa. And he embraced the kind of syncretic blend of leftish economics and European nationalism. Um, this is national Bolshevism. It's just that that term wasn't around then. And so, yeah, he modeled his revolutionary program on Lenin's, but from the right. He formed Young Europe as a part of this program, and he tried to corral Belgium's various far-right groups into a, a coherent, unified whole. And to this end, he created the... Um, can you say this for us? Yeah, so he created the Parti Communautaire Européen. So uh, that that party was basically uh, useless in Belgian elections, uh, but it went on in, until the, the 80s. And uh, we think uh, we know why. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We'll get to that theory about why it persisted for so long. Um, and yeah, his close ally during this period was uh, Emile Le Cerf. Now, Le Cerf had also been a collaborator. He'd written for the pro-Nazi Le Soir magazine. Le Soir was a collaborator magazine during the Second World War. Then, when it when it um, when uh, World War II ended, it uh, continued being uh, you know just a regular magazine. You know, after the war, then he dodged a prosecution and he became a, a movie critic. Weirdly enough, and he linked up with uh, Telia, and he was an influential voice in young Europe. You know, at least up until 1964 when he was kicked out as part of this PR drive to purge the movement of um, Nazi elements and what they called the racist extreme right. Um, and Le Cerf remained on good terms with him anyway. I think that he considered it a cost of doing business type thing, you know. Now we'll we'll circle back to him, but another ally of uh, Thierryat was Luc Jaurès. And by following his story, we can explore the, the broader right wing and esoteric currents that were at work in Belgium and Europe as well. So esoteric orders have always been very fashionable with the European ruling class, and a number of new groups proliferated across the continent after World War II. So as well as you know giving the idle rich something to do, uh, they also offer excellent 
like professional and social networking opportunities. And these groups are one of the many ways that like the European elite ensure class unity and cohesion. And many of the orders that were founded after 1945 or so, they share the same broad characteristics. Um, so they're highly exclusive. They're ferociously anti-communist. They're connected to various intelligence agencies and they embrace a gooey kind of like new age spirituality that's like shot through with fascism. And most of all, they're influenced by the concept of the synarchy, which connects to what we were talking about just now about how um, these ideas are very popular with elites in Belgium. And that's, you know, because synarchy stresses the importance of very clearly defined social hierarchies and it advocates the overthrow of democracy in favor of rule by an elite, you know. And yeah, this stuff, understandably, was very appealing to a European ruling class that I think felt besieged in a lot of ways by the anti-colonial movement that was abroad and, you know, the massive social change that was underway, especially through the 1960s in like Central and Western Europe. So Nick, tell us a bit about Luc Jaurès. Yeah, so he's a bit of a character. So uh, let's get into it. Uh, he was born in uh, the former Belgian Congo in Kiwit in 1947, uh, and he quickly went back to Belgium to acquire a medicine diploma at the uh, University of Brussels in the 70s. Then he became a homeopathist, actually. So uh, he became sort of a kind of a guru already. Yeah, like, yeah, a, a shaman. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, and uh, actually, Jure started with uh, leftist politics uh, when he was young. From 1965 to 75, he was part of the Walloon Communist Youth. Uh, but then he quickly uh, slided more to the right when he served his military service. So that was in uh, 77 to 78. He was a medical officer in the, um, a paratrooper battalion in Belgium. Then he went from calling himself a Maoist to, you know, being uh, some somewhat more of a, a right winger. Uh, he had um, a girlfriend that he met at a at a occult hotspot in Brussels, you know, where people uh, interested in uh, homeopathy, but also, you know, wider uh, interests like uh, I don't know uh, shamanism. He said uh, stuff like that, black magic, and yeah, black magic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and funny enough, that uh, Okudospot uh, was run by uh, Angela Van Roem, which was uh, a former Nazi collaborator and now uh, an occult movement leader who uh, served as a sort of a, a mentor to Jure, who would go on to form a sort of, a, a, well, a cult uh, later on in his life. Uh, and he, you know, he got uh, all the, the rituals for his cult and uh, even the name, the OTS uh, or OST in English, uh, you know, from that woman, Angela Van Roem. So she sort of provided him the framework for like what would become yeah. the order of the solar temple. Right, right. So yeah. he would frequent that, that establishment, you know, uh, with his own girlfriend. And, uh, and yeah, he got inspired. In 78... As a paratrooper medic, he took part in the airborne operation Kovelzi, 
which was in uh, Zaire, former Berlin Congo. There it is again. <laughs> yeah, there it is. And he uh, he was there along with the French Green Berets and the Belgian paratroopers. Uh, and it turns out that to you know participate in this operation, you had to be uh, on a list of people with anti-communist service records. Excuse me. Uh, you know, and you were selected by the Belgian military intelligence. Right. So let's just break that down. So we have a guy who claimed far left Maoist politics, definitely wanted to be seen as a person with like far left political beliefs, uh, which does make me think of Lee Harvey Oswald in, yeah. in an odd way. Yeah, sure. Like, like he's play acting a role, mm-hmm. you know, exaggerating a role that's been assigned to him. And despite this, he is selected by Belgian military intelligence. He's headhunted to take part in this operation because he has an established anti-communist service record. So I don't know if we could directly say from there, well, was this guy a gladiator? Yeah. An actual agent? But it has the the fingerprints of such, I think. Absolutely, yeah. And we'll see later on in his life, you know, uh, it appears that, you know, Around the, the late seventies, uh, early eighties, he, you know, he went from being this uh, leftist shaman to being this uh, basically uh, far right, almost uh, neo-Nazi. So uh, during the decolonization process of the former Berlin Congo, as we saw, uh, he met uh, Jean Thiriard, which was uh, the head of the Young Europe movement. Yeah, and he he's the one who eventually established the uh, PCE. Um, we will get into like uh, Tilliat's connections a little bit later on, but as of this point here now, uh, Jaurès is he's venturing into spirituality and esotericism like in a big way, isn't he? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, he started frequenting neo Templar orders, actually, so you know, uh, Catholic orders, as we could say, but with a spiritual twist. So. Um, Around the 80s, then, he was involved with uh, Julien Origas. So that's Julien Origas, renovated order of the temple. So the Julien Origas movement and uh, other Neo-Templar movements, they're claiming heritage from the Knights Templar. There's a lot of like Neo-Templar shit that goes on in these uh, European esoteric societies and esoteric orders and whatnot. Julien Origas founded the Renovated Order of the Temple. The Renovated Order and what would become the Order of the Solar Temple, they aren't the only groups you know, that claim to be descended from the Knights Templar. You've got like Freemasonry at one time that had a major fixation on the Knights Templar. Uh, and some groups that were part of the temperance movement as well, like in the 19th century, they also um, claimed some heritage from the, the Knights Templar. And the way that I think the Templars were destroyed, you know, in in the 14th century, I believe, the way that the historical records and the survivors were all like scattered to the wind, I think that that has meant they've become a source of inspiration for these postmodern esoteric spiritual movements because you can pick and choose what you like about them and mix it all in with like other philosophies and political currents and there you go, you've got a new religion, basically. Um, and yeah, Luc Jaurès's class background and his very strange politics and these new age spiritual beliefs of his, they were a perfect fit for neo-Templarism. Yeah, absolutely. I think he was the, the perfect mold for this kind of stuff. Uh, and he really got into it. You know, he started his own movement after, but we'll get to that. Uh, I wanted to spin back to Julien Origas and uh, develop a little bit more on him. 
So he's a former Gestapo agent, uh, French Gestapo agent, uh, during World War II. And he was, uh, so a collaborator, yeah, with, um, Italian fascists. He had strong news with them and he knew Julius Evola, from which he apparently received a, an occult initiation called a, a solar initiation in 1955. This is where I'm just going to interject here with um, something that I think could be worth mulling over, which is Julius Evola was, uh, yeah, an Italian fascist philosopher. His writing encompassed everything from like race science to esotericism, and he was popular with the European um far right, especially like upper class true believers, because his work promoted this ultra violent form of synarchy. Uh, he advocated for the rule of society by what he called a spiritually enlightened elite. So like a warrior caste of men is what he also called them. Now he was a Nazi intelligence asset. He fled from Italy to Germany as the allies sort of rolled up Mussolini's regime. Then he went back to Italy to become a player in uh, the Nazi puppet state of uh, Sailor. Yeah, that that Sailor, which <laughs> given what we know of the film of the same name, uh, it makes this next bit quite interesting because after the war, he remained massively fucking influential in Italian far-right politics and by extension, the rest of Europe's neo-fascist movement, especially like in Belgium, you know, where they have this like entrenched nobility that quite fancies itself like um, the rightful rulers of Belgian society, you know. And even up to the present, you can still find everyone uh, from like Steve Bannon to the Golden Dawn in Greece. They still cite Evola as um, an influence, as an inspiration. Given his influence, his writing about sex and magic is of particular interest to me. I'm a little bit worried. I may lose some of you here, but he believed that the West had undergone this dramatic emasculation, you know, and that violence and nationalism were the answer. So blah, blah, blah. That's kind of standard fascist shit. But his writing about sexuality um, is of particular interest because for Evola, women could only find their real selves in complete submission to a man. Um, and the, this man would become her husband and lover, but also her father and her lord. Sadomasochism was something Evola encouraged as a tool to be used for disciplining women to accept their subordinate role. And as part of that, virgins were there to be ritualistically violated. And the idea was that this would restore the natural masculine order of Western society. He wrote that uh, members of this spiritually enlightened elite, uh, these people that he called uh, differentiated individuals, they should commit Dionysian acts as a raw demonstration of their power and virility. Now, the more transgressive an act, you know, the more shocking and horrifying the closer a member of this warrior caste could get to what he called ecstatic sexual transcendence. Now, these Dionysian acts served another purpose besides achieving this spiritual transcendence. The more that they violated the norms of mainstream morality, the more effective he believed they were in striking against the modern world. This connects to the revanchism that we discussed in episode one that weighs so heavily, you know, on um, like the, the Belgian monarchy and the nobility and the aristocracy as well. But 
Evola goes further because he explicitly connects his fascist politics to a program of sexual violence, basically. And this is meant to condition society into accepting a kind of weird, esoteric, misogynistic, white supremacist feudalism. Um, and he wasn't the only fascist philosopher pushing this stuff in high society circles. And right up to the present day, it survives as um, a guiding principle, really, in the ideological framework of groups like um, the Order of Nine Angles, which, you know, that encourages its members to commit acts of rape and child abuse to terrorize mainstream society and destabilize the social order. That's the end of this rather long footnote, but I thought it was worth including that here. Yeah, I think so too, because we'll see uh, something similar or, you know, very much influenced from this line of thinking later on with uh, fascist groups and uh, uh, virus cults we're about to discuss. To get back to uh, Jure and the renovated order of the temple, uh, actually the renovated order of the temple was uh, an offshoot of the French Rosicrucian order, um, AMORC. So that's Antiquus Mysticus Ordo Rosicrucis. They fucking get everywhere, don't they? The Rosicrucians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, they're, they're head in France uh, at the time. So that's Raymond Bernard. Uh, he acquired orders, he claims, from uh, a mysterious person who works at the Vatican uh, that he refers to as the White Cardinal. So, um, he met in Rome, uh, they met, excuse me, in Rome, uh, around September 68, uh, you know, just uh, casually inside the crypt of the San Nilo Abbey. And there, apparently, uh, the White Cardinal, who was an Italian was giving these orders of the on on based on the orders of an Italian group and on Italian territory was calling for uh, the, the Raymond Bernard to establish uh, a Templar order back in France, you know, and um, so that's what Raymond Bernard did with the renovated of the order of the Temple in 1972. Uh, and when Origas was put in charge of the renovated order of the temple, he pushed uh, Raymond Bernard away, and then the ROT shift to intense anti-communism and a pro-American stance. So surely that's, you know, a bit questionable. So the renovated order of the temple is like the, the precursor to the order of the solar temple. Right. Um, and even here at the beginning of the 1970s, it's starting to look, dare I say, like it's a front for maybe an intelligence operation of some kind, um, certainly given all the connections that we're going to get into between Luc Jaure and Origas uh, and other forces in this story. Right. And uh, speaking of intelligence connections, uh, it turns out that the owner of the esoteric bookshop 
and Oculus hotspot in Brussels uh, that I was referring to um, actually, you know, uh, testified in the Belgian parliamentary inquiry into cults. Um, and he said that Luc Jouret, uh, at through his time in the Belgian army, got recruited by the public information office. So Right, so the PIO. Keep that in mind, listen. PIO, yeah, yeah PIO. Uh, the PIO was created in 1974 by then Minister of Defence of Belgium, Paul van den Bouillonans. Mm-hmm. And uh, its official goal was to establish efficient communication and propaganda of the Belgian army against the enemy, communism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, it was basically, uh, to their own words, you know, a psychological operation that was headed by one Major Jean Bougerol. Um, we can talk a bit about him. He was born in 1934, uh, selected after uh, a long career in the Belgian military. Uh, he went to Belgian Congo multiple times. He was also assigned to Germany for a bit. And in around the seven, around 1970, he was approached by the uh, military intelligence professionals of the Belgian army, which is the ESR, or Équipe Spéciale de Renseignement, as we call it in French. And then he was made uh, head of the PIO in 74. Uh, and that's when he started, you know, going around the world to meet uh, the World Anti-Communist League, uh, anti-communist organizations. And he even went, uh, according to him, to Fort Bragg in the U.S. to, you know, learn a trick or two. According to, to one former member of the PIO, they basically infiltrated uh, organizations and uh, political uh, groups, you know, to either sabotage them or to push them. Uh, where they wanted him. So that includes uh, the uh, Christian Democrats, uh, CEPIC, so that's the far-right fringe of the Christian Democrats. I think we'll get to that later. We'll we'll detail it. Uh, they also infiltrated a new Europe magazine, which was the Eurofascist publication uh, of the time. and But also they infiltrated uh, Neo-Templar religious groups, such as the Brotherhood of the Hospitalier of Notre-Dame-Dorne, the Sunfrang and Military Order of the Temple of Jerusalem, and the Militia of Jesus Christ. The PIO also trained some members of Front de la Jeunesse, which we'll get into later. There was something else I wanted to bring up. I don't know how significant this is, but it feels significant anyway, which is through the 60s and like into the early 70s, that's when Opus Dei began establishing uh, a stronger presence in Belgium as well. And I just find that curious timing, given this infiltration that's going on of various like religiously inspired groups and neo-Templar orders. I just thought of it because of your uh, mention of the Vatican. Yeah, there, there's something there, you know. I, I think I... I can understand that. And I think we'll see uh, many members of Opus Dei actually, uh, you know, coming coming on later into this story. So it seems that uh, Luc Jure's missions in, in the PIO was to infiltrate these esoteric groups, as we obviously just named a few, like the, the Neo-Templar groups. And um, uh, yeah, also... Uh, Jouret stayed close to Thiriard, Jean Thiriard, through the, the 70s and the 80s. And they actually uh, 
pretty much successfully split the Belgian Communist Party. You know, they were uh, infiltrating it with their with their Parti Communautaire Européen members. So you know, just um, sowing chaos and dissent through the the party. And um, actually, most you know, uh, communists in Belgium thought that the Parti Communautaire Européen, given its entire America stance, was a, a leftist movement. You know, with just some nationalist undertones. Uh, well, they were effectively steered into a political dead end because uh, it was, you know, just a distraction. Given uh, Gervais' connection to PIO and this subversion of the Communist Party um, and what the PIO itself was doing, the idea of him and Tillia operating as state security assets in some capacity, I find that very plausible, to be honest. Absolutely, yeah. I think they're, well, it just makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, this is when uh, Jaurès also meets um, Joseph de Mambra in the early 80s. He's like this French cook, uh, another guru type. Um, in another life, he'd been a jeweler and a con man. He was like a street hustling spiritual seeker. <laughs> he started attending meetings of um, the service de action civique in the uh, late 50s. Now, the SAC, as I'll call it, this wasn't an esoteric order. It was founded by uh, Jacques Fouquet and Charles uh, Pasqua as a covert paramilitary outfit. Um, uh, Fouquet was a French politician. He was an advisor on African affairs to uh, Charles de Gaulle. He played a major role in establishing France's own like, neo-colonial regime in Africa. And he was close to Mobutu. So there's the Congo again. And he had numerous business concerns across uh, Europe and Africa. De Gaulle tasked him with purging the French intelligence agency, uh, S-D-E-C-E. And he also worked with uh, Francois de... You can say Francois de Grossouvre. That's the one. He worked with him to found and train the National Front's security arm. So, you know, Le Pen, like the National Front, uh, they got a security division and that was called the Department for Protection and Security. And then he uh, rose to become head of national security under uh, Francois Mitterrand. And he also commanded the French Gladio Network as well. He was found dead with two shots to the head in uh, 1994. This was ruled a suicide. There's a lot of that um, going around in Europe <laughs> right, in right. Um, the 70s and 80s and 90s. So yeah, the SAC then, this is a bit of a tangent, but it's worth it to get a feel for the, the size of these networks. You know, So the SAC was like a satellite group of the Gaullist movement. Um, it operated mainly in Africa. It was eventually repurposed to protect the Gaulle's followers from attacks by far-right forces who were pissed at Charles de Gaulle's new Algeria policy. And heroin played a big role as well because the SAC recruited from the Corsican underworld and it was getting a cut of the CIA French connection, you know, and this is to finance its operations. And some of these SAC members were pro-French Algeria. So when Charles de Gaulle's policy towards the colony shifted, a mini civil war erupted inside SAC. De Gaulle then just used them as a hit squad mostly through the 60s, sent them after like right and left wing enemies and dissidents. By that point, though, uh, De Mambro was a lodge leader of the Rosicrucians. So when uh, De Mambro died in the, uh, the mass suicides of the Order of the Solar Temple uh, in the 90s, uh, he made one of the survivors uh, 
Patrick Vuene. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he made him mail his passport and a letter to Charles Pasqua. And the terms used were very familiar. Uh, you know, like it was obvious that they were very good friends with each other. Now, we'll get into the wave of Solar Temple suicides and murders in later episodes, but know that by the time that happened, the Order of the Solar Temple had drawn much of its membership from like the elite circles of European society. There are rumors that Grace Kelly um, was a member of the, the predecessor group. Um, and underwent an occult initiation, you know, Princess Grace of Monaco. I think de Mambro's story is interesting because it has a lot of parallels with uh, Luc Jaurès. You know, both of them flirted with paramilitary groups and covert operations. They had very fucking weird politics. They had at least some connection to the security services in France and Belgium. They had very ambiguous attitudes like decolonization, and they would eventually submerge themselves in esoteric groups and new age spiritual movements that were embraced by that European ruling class. How did uh, Jaurès and Dimambro meet then? So, yeah, they met through uh, Dimambro's foundation, which was called the Golden Way Foundation. Uh, so to, to be absolutely clear, uh, Dimambro started uh, in the Rosicrucians, the French Rosicrucians. Yeah. Uh, so then met Jaurès, through the Golden Way Foundation. Um, and then they later on collaborated to form the Order of the Solar Temple. But we'll see that later. Because it's, yeah. it's a bit confusing, I know. So just, you know, uh, all these Templar orders basically came from the Rosicrucians. Yeah. Apparently, uh, Dimambro knew members of uh, another organization, you know, um, called the Golden Circle, which the White Cardinal uh, I talked about earlier that gave orders to reform a, a neo-Templar order in France. He was part of it, and uh, apparently many Italian lawyers, businessmen, uh, bankers, uh, personalities, politicians, all that, were part of um, the Golden Circle organizations, mm -hmm. which, which was basically um, all these Freemason lodges from Genova, Rome, uh, Milan, Turin, all that. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, Dimembro gave details on that. Uh, there were apparently 72 members uh, by 1994. And there was another circle above the Golden Circle, which was the Tiger Circles, of which there were seven members. And apparently from that Tiger Circle, there was a gateway to Turin's Masonic Lodge Propaganda Tre. Sorry about my Italian. Have you heard mine, mate? Don't worry about it. <laughs> and, and there was supposed to be a, a sister of the well-known lodge, Propaganda Due. There we go. There we go. Yeah. Propaganda Due has arrived, and so has Propaganda Tre. Yeah. So it, it's a bit confusing, but basically it was, you know, uh, in the lower circles of this uh, Italian-European organization, mm -hmm. which basically ties into the... Uh, underworld and the Masonic lodges of Italy. Yeah, I mean, by the time you get in a connection to P2 Masonic Lodge, that is Gladio, basically. It's a pretty easy case to make against Dimambro, I think. Right. Uh, so Dimambro, as far as his relationship goes with Luc Jure, he was this mentor of, or, or even a guide, mm -hmm. uh, as he called himself. He had authority over him. And uh, that's how he got uh, Jure involved with the renovated order of the temple. Uh, 
uh, Origas, which was getting very sick, um, got introduced to uh, Jouret first in, well, first in 1980 and 1981, but that, you know, Origas pushed him away and then Dimambro pushed for Jouret to, you know, get involved with this order. And that's what he did in 1983. Um, and basically, Jouret, uh, he got involved with this order to infiltrate it uh, from inside. And then when Origas was supposed to die, he was supposed to take over. So, you know, uh, Origas gave him all these occult initiations um, yeah. and uh, including the Evola solar initiation that Origas was supposed to have received in uh, from um, from Evola. That's interesting. And Right, right. And, and I think that's the reason why the Order of the Solar Temple is called the Order of the Solar Temple. That's because there was this, you know, uh, solar occult dimension to it. So, um, when Origas died in 1984, uh, Jouret was pushed to become the new Grandmaster of the Order, of the Order of the Renovated Temple. Uh, and he basically did a, a coup. He, show at, he showed up at uh, Origas' funeral with six of his companions, and they pushed uh, Origas' family away from his grave. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, it was basically this, this whole stage thing. Uh, of course, this was not taken lightly by the family. Mm-hmm. You know, and the order basically spit in through, in through, sorry, and uh, Jure created uh, uh, a split from uh, the renovated order of the temple. It gets a bit complicated. Um, and he formed the International Chivalric Order of the Solar Tradition. We're nearly there. So like, we're nearly <laughs> from there, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from there, thirty members of the original renovated order of the temple followed him. Um, and Jouret allied himself with Dimambro, uh, gave him the, sh- the solar occult initiation from Evola, and then together they formed the uh, Order of the Solar Temple, you know, merging uh, Dimambro's Golden Way Foundation and Jouret's Solar Order to form then the Order of the Solar Temple with, Di- with Dimambro as the financier and Luke as the Grandmaster. To unlock the rest of this episode, please head over to patreon.com forward slash ghost stories for the end. Thank you.